we use a, a process called microencapsulation to build a polymer shell around a liquid material. And that liquid material we refer to as, an, as a healing agent, right? So that microencapsulated healing agent is then embedded into a material so that when the material is damaged, that microcapsule or set of microcapsules are broken, that healing agent is released into the site of damage where it helps the material recover its uh, original properties. Welcome to It's a Material World, the show that uncovers why material science will change the world. With your hosts, David Ye and Panithu Padia. Before we get into the episode, we have a free MSC company database categorized by industry sector, location, as well as internship and full-time titles, so you can find that link in the show notes below. And without further ado, let's get started. Hello, everyone. We have a fantastic guest for today's episode in Dr. Gerald Wilson, the president and CEO of Autonomic Materials an industry leader in self-healing technologies for coatings, sealants, adhesives, and composites. Gerald led the development of the coatings industry's first set of additives designed to impart self-healing functionality into industrial waterborne, solvent-borne, and powder coatings. From his research at UIUC to his work at Autonomic Materials, he has developed an extensive knowledge base in self-healing polymers, so we're super excited to have him on the show today. Thank you so much for joining us today, Gerald. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. It's good to be with you guys. So we want to just start off with the basics, the ground level. So self-healing materials at the surface level kind of seems self-explanatory, but there's a whole intricate mechanism that, that comes into play. So I was just wondering if you could talk us through how they work and maybe give us an example of self-healing mechanisms, because I feel like there's differences, right? There's different mechanisms. Yeah, sure, sure, absolutely. So so I think a good way to think about what self-healing materials are is to think about imparting uh, functionality into materials that allow them to recover their most important properties after damage. Okay, so that, that, that's sort of the, the, the main part of the definition is what happens after damage. So from that standpoint, you know, there's been a lot of research into designing self-healing functionalities into various types of uh, materials. I think one good example would be, you know, what sort of uh, underpins a lot of the work that we do at Autonomic Materials, where we use a, a process called microencapsulation to build a polymer shell around a liquid material. And that liquid material we refer to as, an, as a healing agent, right? So that microencapsulated healing agent is then embedded into a material so that when the material is damaged, that microcapsule or set of microcapsules are broken, that healing agent is released into the site of damage where it helps the material recover its uh, original properties. So how exactly, like what about the healing agent allows it to kind of repair the material as a whole? So first of all, the microencapsulation process allows us to build a shell wall that is really well bonded to the material. We, we think of that as, as the matrix, right? So if you think about a coating, for example, if that microcapsule is well bonded to the rest of the coating, when that coating is mechanically damaged, that damage transfers from the material matrix to the microcapsule shell wall, which causes this to rupture. 
And then uh, what we've done is design a healing agent that is basically a blend of polymer precursors, corrosion inhibitors, adhesion promoters, that when it's released into the site of damage and it polymerizes, you essentially now have a material that is a lot like a coating. It's got a polymer binder, it's well bonded to the underlying substrate, and it has a corrosion inhibitor in it that helps mitigate corrosion. So it's like replacing coating where it's lost is probably a, a high level way of thinking about it. So by replacing the coating, and you're talking about all these additives, is it the same additives that would be already on the surface? Or are you adding new materials to change the properties as wear occurs? So I, essentially what we're doing is trying to help the material recover as much of its original properties as possible. So if we're talking about a coating, those are barrier properties, right, for protecting the underlying substrate, it's corrosion uh, resistance type property. So we're, we're trying to design a healing agent that is pretty similar to, to the rest of the coating. Got it. And so you mentioned a polymerization process. So I was just wondering, there's like a termination step with polymerization, right? And I was wondering if that's something that that is a challenge in terms of like finding the right place to terminate that process, or am I kind of not thinking about the right thing or when it comes to like properly fit, like repairing and, and providing enough material to kind of restore those properties? Yeah, sure. So there, there's several different types of polymer chemistries and, and resulting polymerization mechanisms. In this case, you know, we design our healing agents to take advantage of thermosetting resin systems that will cross-link at the site of damage, right? And so in those instances, you know, they'll cross-link, that polymerization will proceed to higher levels of conversion until you reach a point where conversion is no longer possible, not, not to get too technical, but it's <laughs> no longer possible below the glass transition temperature, right? And so it effectively terminates at that point in time. Got it. So you've also followed a unique path as you've pursued both your PhD and your MBA at UIUC to gain a deeper understanding of self-healing polymers, but also the business side of things. What drove you to this decision to pursue a technical and business degree? And in what situations would you recommend to our listeners that they should do the same? Yeah, I think I was always just sort of fascinated with both sides of thinking about innovation and, and, and product development. You know, going back to my undergraduate work, I, you know, before coming to, uh, before going to the University of Illinois and getting a PhD in material science and engineering, I was a chemistry major as an undergraduate. And even back then, I, you know, for a while contemplated a, a double major in, in economics, right? I, I was always sort of fascinated by how you can use technology, science to, to create value and, and uh, was passionate about learning as much as I could, you know, about the combination of those things. So, so I, I think my curiosity sort of led me in the direction of trying to understand how I could build a career at that interface between uh, technology or product development and business. And so I followed my curiosity uh, down that path. And that sort of led me to, you know, to studying both material science and, and, and business. And I would say, you know, to, to the extent 
people find themselves sort of drawn to questions that kind of straddle the interface between product development and and business. I mean, it's a pretty natural interface, right? You know, in order to bring a new product to market, you you sort of have to understand how you're creating value with it. So I think if you're drawn to to answering questions at that interface, then I would say studying uh, in in both areas is likely to help. Yeah, and I would also say that it, you don't necessarily have to feel like you want to be like start your own business and follow this like entrepreneurial path right out of the gate in order to also you know get a business degree or take business classes as well. Like from what I've seen, you know it's a long term play a little bit, but if you want to go down like a managerial path, it's important to have kind of that systems level view of things and kind of understand the business impacts and the business risks in addition to the R&D side of things. So would you kind of agree with that statement too? Like, or would you say I, that? I would, I, I would to a certain extent, but but I'd, I would also say that getting a business degree is not essential for getting that that systems level view, right? So I, I wouldn't want people walking away with, with the idea that you, you need an MBA in order to chart a career path that takes you through management over the course of your career. I, I think these are things that, that you can learn on your own in a lot of different ways. A lot of, a lot of them you can learn as your career develops as part of an organization. I think for me, my level of interest in, in both areas uh, and my curiosity and passion uh, for how I could leverage that interface led me, you know, in that direction of wanting to get a little bit deeper. Um, but I think it really is a function of what you know what people ultimately want to do with their careers. Mm-hmm. But all those options are are ones that could lead to you know having that systems level management type contribution over the course of your career. Yeah, absolutely. I was also wondering what were the main advantages you found from getting your MBA degree as opposed to, I feel with get just getting the hands-on experience of running a company, you also learn a lot about the business side naturally. So what are the main advantages of getting your MBA in addition to that technical degree? Yeah, I, I you know, I think that it, it sort of complemented what I was doing every day in the business, right? Uh, so rather than you know, working on something very specific, trying to figure out, for example, you know, how to how to put the right marketing strategy together for a business, you know, I was getting a, a broader view while getting my MBA, right, Get, getting introduced to, to, to various frameworks that that could be leveraged in, in figuring out how to how to think about, you know, a problem like that. So, I think it just complemented, you know, what I was learning every day, trying to get our, our business off the ground, you know, with what what I was getting while pursuing my MBA. And and the other the other direction was was also true. I, I found that because you know I could take you know what I was learning uh, in the classroom and, and and implement it right away, which you know, most people don't have that opportunity to implement the broadest scope of what you might get exposed to in an MBA program right away. And I was able to do that. And so I think I, I was able to come back to our discussions in, in our courses with real life concrete examples of, of how, you know, some of these principles uh, could be deployed. And it, it helped me, I think, um, get even more out of that program. 
Absolutely. I guess this is a question for David then, like how does, how did your technology and management minor help with that sort of thing and your kind of passion for the business side of things? Yeah. Uh, so the, my minor was basically just a business minor for engineers. And I, I think that it just exposed me to a lot of concepts. And uh, like Gerald would say, you just kind of get a nice breadth of things to understand when you get into the workforce, just like kind of what's going on. Of course, it's nowhere near as like in-depth as an MBA. So it was really just to get me familiar and understand the basics in a way that made it very easy to transition when I actually did get into a position where it needed it to take what I knew and quickly learn and build upon it, but already have a, like a strong foundation to like, at least know what's going on and what steps forward would be. So I think it was just very good to get an overall view and basically set myself up to grow upon that. If that's the road I wanted to go. Yeah. Um, but now we can kind of take it back to self-healing materials, which is the, the focus of this episode. <laughs> there seems to be like a lot of potential for innovation in the space. And I know we'll talk about kind of the coding industry in more detail soon, but to start out, what other applications can self-healing materials make an impact in? Okay. So, so if you think, if we just go back to the way I define self-healing materials, which is the ability for a material system to recover its most uh, critical functionality after damage, right? So, so then if you think about it from that perspective, then any applications where materials are, are subjected to conditions that might cause damage and that damage can, can compromise the material's ability to function in that particular application is a potential application for self-healing technology, right? And that's, that's a very broad range of, of, of potential applications. I, I think that, you know, just to keep it, you know, fairly narrow for the purposes of this, this conversation, you know, we can think about uh, applications that are maybe adjacent to, to coding. So think about things like sealants and um, adhesives and, and, and composites, for example. In, in a lot of those applications, you have materials uh, being used in, in very critical functions. So if you're joining two parts, for example, let's uh, say in, a, in an automotive application, you're using a structural adhesive, that's becoming more and more common as you know, uh, light weighting becomes an important uh, feature of, of designing the next generation of vehicles. Uh, you know, David would be very, very familiar with, with this idea. When you do have adhesives, for example, joining two parts, let's say dissimilar materials, for example, that creates a lot of stresses in that adhesive joint and, and you begin to get cracks that form in the adhesive joint and, and that those cracks will propagate uh, over time and lead to some, some kind of failure. And what you want to avoid is for that failure to be catastrophic. And so designing in self-healing functionality, uh, even using microcapsule-based technologies like we have will arrest that crack early on and prevent its propagation and therefore slow down the rate at which it might uh, propagate to the point where you might have some sort of catastrophic failure. So that's, that, that's one sort of adjacent example of, of potential applications, but you can see how that could be transitioned into sealants, into composites and, and, and all the material systems like that. 
So for all these technologies, it sounds like the major way of releasing the self healing is through some sort of impact uh, with like the, the fracture. And then the fracture is like another way of impact, which is just like stress concentration at the tip of a crack. That's right. What other types of mechanisms could be used for uh, activating self-healing uh, materials? So there are there are a few other ways you could you could approach it, right? So you know, for for most of you know the work that we do, and I would say the work that is that is most advanced, uh, even in academia you have to somehow find a way to compartmentalize a healing agent within the material system, right? So, so we use microcapsules, some of the work that's gone on at the University of Illinois, you know, the, the research group that I was a member of, you know, they've sort of gone on and, and taken the approach of designing in microvascular systems, for example, that are, you know, basically, basically vascularized systems that, you know, contain a healing agent that uh, allow that healing agent to be more present throughout the entire material. So, you know, once you take that step to compartmentalize, then you can look at a number of different methods for facilitating release of the healing agent from those compartments. Okay, so we use stress concentration as you as you described it, David. But you can envision using heat, for example, if you're in an application where use conditions are such that ambient temperature is relatively high. You know, you can envision chemical changes, you know, so for example, pH changes that cause the, the rupture of microcapsules or trigger release of healing agents from a vac vascularized structure, for example. So, so the reality is that it boils down to, to, to design, but you can design a fairly broad range of external triggers to, to initiate a, a healing response. And to what extent it, with current technologies, like what scale can like a crack be repaired um, in a material? Because we did a capstone project where we were just like learning the product development process. So we were just kind of like, making up a technology and we chose self-healing body armor. David's laughing at this, but because he heard it from me a thousand times, but we, I guess like, you know, that, that's a, that's a pretty big impact, right? Like a bullet makes a pretty big impact. And then I guess it would have to repair itself on a pretty quick time scale. So I just wanted to hear like, realistically, where are we at with that technology in terms of like this, the maximum scale one can repair itself? At. Yeah, that's a good question because there's there's a lot going on in academia, right? So you know, a lot of that is still pretty far away. I would say from from being commercial. I wouldn't say far away. That's probably not the right way to describe it. But there's still still a lot of work to be done uh, in in bringing some of those 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 technologies to 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 market. But and I don't know on the large end of things that you know that. I want to put a number on it, but but I would say certainly visible damage, uh, you know, can be re repaired with with technologies that are sort of at our at the level of what we're working on, uh, what we deploy in encoding systems. But I think that you know some of the academic work that's that's going on right now has that damage that's being repaired. You know, becoming you know fairly large, you know, on the order of of even a, a few centimeters, you know, based on a number of really interesting uh, polymer chemistries that are that are being developed right now. 
Well, in a previous call, you explained a two-by-two two matrix that explained the self-healing coding industry really well. Could you talk us through this in more detail and what applications may look like in, in each quadrant of this matrix? Sure, I'm happy to do that. So that was sort of my way of, of trying to segment, you know, the technologies that are out there, you know, whether they've been commercialized or um, still at, at the academic stage and, and think about where they could actually be used, right? So the technologies that, you know, I think can be broadly segmented into those that are what I would call truly autonomic or truly self-healing. So those are the ones that don't require any sort of external intervention to drive the healing response, right? So the material is being used in a specific application, damage occurs, a healing response is triggered, and that's an autonomic response, truly autonomic. And then you have those that require some kind of external intervention, right? So you you can visibly see that the material uh, let's say a coating, for example, has been scratched and you can apply UV radiation or heat or something like that to alleviate the appearance of, of, of that scratch. That I think of as non-autonomic. Okay, So if you think about a two-by-two two matrix where you have non-autonomic on sort of the, the x-axis, the, the lower left side of that quadrant and then autonomic on the right and then you start mapping those to to applications as to whether they're more aesthetic so think about you know the appearance of your cell phone for example if you if you scratch it or your or your vehicle right that that's i i, I see that as more of a of an aesthetic response so think about that aesthetic response at the lower left end of that quadrant as well and then on the top left side of that quadrant think about it as protective mitigating against corrosion right more, more of a heavy duty type type protection so you can have technologies then that are both autonomic and aimed at a protective kind of application that's what we focus on so the chemistries that we we develop at autonomic materials would fit in that top right quadrant, right? But there are also technologies that are, you know, that have been developed in academia, for example, that require, that could be envisioned for use in, in a protective application, but require that external intervention, right? So those would be in that uh, top left quadrant. And then the bottom left quadrant where the technologies are aesthetic, and non-autonomic, a lot of those are what, you know, get routinely reported in the media. If you do a search on, on self-healing and you start finding, you know, technologies that have, you know, been evaluated in automotive clear coats or on, or on electronic devices, for example, most of those require some kind of heat. And so they will fall in that, in that quadrant. And then the holy grail, I think, as far as aesthetic applications go, will be those that are in that bottom right quadrant, right? That are both autonomic and aesthetic. Uh, from a material science or polymer chemistry standpoint, that is extremely difficult to accomplish. But, but that, you know, is assuming the value is there because people are, you know, upgrading their, their phones as often as 
twice a year in some <laughs> instances now. So, so you may, you may decide that it, you know, the value, you know, other than, you know, maybe the novelty of it and from a product developer standpoint, the, the differentiation there, you know, I could see in an automotive application, for example, that, that actually having some significant value. And that's, that's certainly an, an area of, uh, of really interesting uh, research uh, for the future. So just to recap, so the axes, the axes are non-autonomic to autonomic, and then also aesthetic to protective. Is that correct? That's correct. Yep. Okay. Got it. So then taking all of that into consideration, we read about one of your technologies. It's called Amp Up RB, I believe, um, which is a self-healing protective solution for rebar and structural metals embedded in concrete. So I remember freshman year, David and I, we read about self-healing concrete in like our first year of college in a book called Stuff Matters. Um, and it talked about how like bacteria was embedded in concrete to make limestone from like other materials and, and therefore like fill those cracks. So to the extent you're allowed to talk about it, considering the proprietary technology, can you just walk us through the general material selection involved and kind of the mechanism that allows for not just an aesthetic solution, but the corrosion protection as well? For first of all, I'm, I'm just really impressed with how much exposure you guys have had to <laughs> self-healing materials in general, going, going back to, to, to your undergraduate work. So AMPOP RB um, was really a response to some really difficult things that, that are sort of happening in the world of construction, right? So I, I don't know if you guys, you know, saw in the news, you know, a few months back, the condo collapse, Surfside condo collapse in, in the Miami area, uh, there was recently a, another five-story building that was evacuated because it was it was deemed uh, un unsafe. The, the reality is that, you know, in architectural type applications, you, you need steel reinforcement to give these structures the, the, the structural integrity that you need. Uh, the, the challenge is that, you know, concrete is a porous material and steel corrodes Right. So if you have these structures that have steel reinforcement in them and they they exist in really corrosive environments, you're going to get, you know, those chlorides penetrating those pores and initiating corrosion. And when you begin to have corrosion on the rebar, then you you you, you essentially begin to build up corrosion products between the rebar and the concrete. Right. And that create stresses that ultimately lead to cracks in the concrete, uh, creates more avenues for more chlorides to enter. And before long, you know, you have a, 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 a you know, a, a rebar or steel reinforcement that is, that is really corroding. And of course, as it corrodes, its ability to provi provide structural integrity gets, gets compromised. So, Armpop RB was a response to that, right? We we knew that uh, we had developed, you know, self-healing coatings that, you know, are showing just industry-leading and and just unprecedented performance in in applications in other, you know, extremely corrosive applications like in water parks, for example. 
And so we, we started thinking about how we could give engineers and, and contractors a solution as they are repairing those assets where you have reinforcement that is significantly corroded give them a solution that would that would perform much much better right so so what we what we essentially developed was was a coating that has our self-healing technology in it and so that when you begin to so that would be applied on the rebar during concrete repair it can also be used on the rebar prior to installation in a in a new build so that when you begin to have the stresses in the material that causes the protective coating on the rebar to to fail, you would get rupture of our healing agents that will basically be released and keep that coating bonded to to the rebar, preventing the the ingress of chlorides that would ultimately cause corrosion. But the the, the challenge with with, uh, deploying new technology like that is, you know, there's there's a trade-off that engineers often have to confront in protecting rebar, which is that, generally speaking, there are products out there that that protect the rebar really well, or reasonably well, I should say, but have really poor adhesion to the concrete, which is absolutely essential, right, for being able to transfer that load from the concrete to the rebar. You have to have really good adhesion between the the rebar and and the concrete. So if if your adhesion of your concrete uh, materials to the rebar is poor, then it's not going to function as well uh, as a reinforcement, right? Now, on the other side of that trade-off is optimizing for for adhesion to the concrete. Well, when you do that, you, you use cementitious coating materials, for example, that will facilitate good bonding with with the concrete, but those are gonna be porous and they're gonna just have poor barrier properties and and, and just be incapable of adequately protecting the rebar. So that is is the equation that that we've solved with that product, the AMPOP RB, is that it's got the self-healing functionality, it's got just outstanding corrosion protection, but we also designed it to have really good bonding. Actually, you know, when you when you compare it to other other rebar coatings, you know, relative to unprotected rebar, it's maintaining 99.2% of its of the adhesion to concrete. Ah. Whereas, you know, some of the other incumbents are hard pressed to get to 90%, right? So so leveraging our technology platform and some some really smart formulation we were able to develop something that was that was truly truly groundbreaking and is already you know uh, making an impact in in those areas where rebar protection is is essential wow so i guess my follow up question there is are there like processing challenges when it comes to having micro capsules and healing agents like what is that production process look like? It's a good question. You know, when you're starting a, a business commercializing technology that was originally developed in academia, you make a lot of assumptions about what's going to be hard and what's going to be easy. Mm-hmm. First of all, that's that's a bad idea. You should probably just assume everything is going to be harder than <laughs> it's going to be. But, you know, the 
the scale up of, of microcapsules is something that I spent a number of years trying to solve. It, it's not as easy as it sounds given the target application, right? So microencapsulation as a technology has been around for a while. You know, if you are familiar with, you know, carbonless paper technologies, I mean, you know, uh, younger folks in general, you know, most of us don't have as much experience writing checks, for <laughs> example, but that was one of the biggest applications for it was that you had microcapsulated ink that was coated on the paper. So when you wrote on one side of it, it would rupture these capsules and, and the ink would be released and it would make an imprint on the other side of the paper, right? So, so for the longest time, that's what microencapsulation was, was used for. And we're using it to microencapsulate a healing agent. Now, scaling up a healing agent blend, that's not hard. Microencapsulating a, a healing agent also not, not very difficult, but doing it at scale in a way that will mitigate, you know, the agglomeration of these particles, for example, is a lot more difficult than it sounds. And then we also needed to take the step of functionalizing the shell walls of these capsules to facilitate uh, really easy dispersion in the target coding formulations, right? So, so we we developed a lot of trade secrets, a lot of new processes, you know, some new intellectual property, just around scaling the you know the uh, the technology up and optimizing the ability to disperse these capsules in target coding formulations. Sounds sounds hard <laughs> when you say it like that. Complicated. <laughs> yeah, it's not unusual for, for people to think, well, you're making a microcapsule and putting it in a coding. How hard can that be? Right? <laughs> but it, it's certainly, you know, fairly complicated. And we spent a lot of time working on trying to figure out, you know, the, the way to do that in a way that's scalable. I, I think one major key that we haven't talked about yet with self-healing polymers is the sustainability function of it. And it's an extremely important aspect to your company as well, as it can help extend the lifetime of products and ensure that they last as long as possible. How does Autonomic Materials plan to innovate to even higher levels of sustainability in the future? And what steps are you taking to achieve these goals? So if we sort of just want to go back to thinking about the inspiration for self-healing materials, going back to the faculty members that I collaborated with as a student, uh, Scott White, Nancy Sotos, Jeff Moore, Paul Braun, they were all very interested in leveraging this self-healing functionality to uh, lengthening the lifetime of materials in their target applications. And that makes sense from a sustainability standpoint, because if, we, if we're not using these, if we're not using polymeric materials from renewable sources, then let's use less of these feedstocks by keeping these materials in service for a longer period of time. Now, when you think about how that applies in, in protective coatings, uh, the sustainability impact, I think, becomes magnified because not only can you design coating systems that last longer and therefore you're using less of the polymer feedstocks that, uh, that make those coatings and all the other components that go into them, but you're also protecting the steel for a longer period of time, which means using, using less steel. Now we're taking that one step further as autonomic materials by leveraging the self-healing functionality to design 
lower VOC uh, volatile organic compounds uh, products that release less toxic chemicals into the environment, right? So, you know, that's another trade-off that exists in the coatings industry. You know, typically if you want high performance asset protection, you're getting that from solvent-borne coating systems that release VOCs into the environment. So that's another trade-off we're eliminating because, you know, we're designing low VOC coating systems and enabling high performance corrosion protection using our, our, our technology. Now, you know, when you think about designing a self-healing materials uh, system, there are basically three domains where you're using materials. You've got the healing agent. That is what, well, probably best to start the other way. You've got the actual material itself. So it's a coating, it's an adhesive, um, it's a polymerized resin. Then you have the healing agent blend that you're trying to use to impart the self-healing functionality into it, right? So that's the second sort of domain of, of material usage. And then you have the material that you're using to compartmentalize the healing agent, right? So in all of those domains currently, we do our best to use components that you know are low VOC, have minimal impact on the environment, but, but generally speaking, it's still really difficult to get away from using resin systems that come from re renewable sources. So that's, I see as sort of the next step for us, uh, a next step towards, you know, having a design system, a product development approach that is truly circular is actually using resins you know, other raw materials that, that come from renewable sources. So you mentioned the issue that arises with, you know, more VOCs, and that's a challenge that seems to persist in this self-healing polymer space. So what do you think MSEs can do to kind of help address these challenges and continue to innovate and create a more sustainable future while ensuring that, you know, this equipment or whatever these polymers are protecting still has an extended lifetime. Yeah, I, I think the focus really needs to be on the raw material side. You know, there is some research uh, going on to, you know, design uh, resin systems from renewable sources, you know, from uh, uh, plant-based materials and, and, and things like that, but, but likely not enough, right? And so I, I see that as, you know, one area of research that we could all benefit from, from seeing grow tremendously. But I also think that, you know, at, at least at an academic level, uh, beginning to see you know, some of the research on smart coding, self-healing, begin to leverage some of the, the, the material systems that are coming from those renewable sources to at least begin to, to demonstrate, you know, how you can comp compartmentalize those types of materials, how you can build shell walls, for example, in a, in a micro capsule-based system, or how you can use them to make vascular structures within material systems. You know, I, I see that as as sort of the the next area of you know potentially really exciting research. Cool. So I guess we we discussed 
quite a few like applications and, and the basics of it. David, did you have anything else you wanted to add? Any last minute questions? Yeah, I just wanted to ask that you talked a lot about scaling up with the materials, but as you said, things sound a lot easier before you actually do it. Uh, with the introduction of potentially new sources of materials, do you foresee like, will we have to change the way we try to encapsulate it? Or is that even potentially an improvement that we can change the way we encapsulate these materials? Potentially, you know, it's hard to say until until you get in there and start working on this, this, this kind of stuff. But, I, you know, to me, that's where, you know, all the opportunity for innovation and, and new intellectual property and, and just really, you know, new groundbreaking research lies. My sense is that, you know, it's going to take some new polymer chemistry to work with those types of raw materials, you know, to design new capsules uh, based on shell walls that come, you know, that, that, that are renewable, uh, recyclable, uh, circular. And yeah, I, you know, to me, there's, there's a lot of exciting work that can, that can happen there. But there's no question that, you know, we're, t- we're still, we're talking, you know, pretty early stage R&D and, and trying to solve those kinds of problems. Going from from that level to something that is ready for commercial introduction, there's going to be a lot of really, really cool problems to solve along the way. That's awesome. And I was just wondering, do you coordinate or collaborate with like the academic side of things and, you know, research at, at universities when it comes to innovating in the space? Yeah, the, you know, we, we, we have, you know, like I mentioned, you know, our technology was originally developed at the University of Illinois. That's where I did my graduate work. And we maintain just really good collaborations with that research group. In fact, we're, we're currently working with them and partners at Carnegie Mellon University on a really, really neat project uh, around designing basically the next generation of uh, rehabilitation materials, rehabilitation uh, systems for legacy natural gas pipes. And it's, it's just, you know, just, just really, really neat material science, robotics, you know, just, just a really cool project, very multidisciplinary, bringing experts from a number of different backgrounds to solve a really challenging problem. So that's, um, you know, I would say our, our, our deepest level of collaboration goes with, you know, is with the University of Illinois. But we've cultivated a brand as, as a leaders in the self-healing space. So what, what that has bought us as well is, you know, researchers working in this space, you know, wanting our feedback on whether or not something that they're working on has, has commercial potential and initiating discussions around potential collaborations with us. So, so that's nice as well. The, the opportunity is always there for those kinds of collaborations. Cool. So we definitely discussed the fundamentals of self-healing materials in, in great detail. And we really appreciate you sharing your experiences and your insights with us. So to kind of conclude this episode, we would love for you to share your final piece of advice that you would give maybe your your 20-year-old self who was in the early stages of his, you know, chemistry slash MSc career. Yeah, you know, <laughs> with the benefit of, of, of hindsight, you know, I would I would say that, you know, my hunch, my intuition, you know, as I was you know, starting my career and, and studying, 
chemistry and material science was that this was a great field to be in because it's so multidisciplinary, right? And I, and I, and I really think being, shall we say, just a few years more into my career than you guys might be at this stage, <laughs> that value is really created at the interface between disciplines, right? I mean, you really need people from multiple backgrounds to solve most problems that are worth spending time on. And so, you know, if I was talking to my 20-year-old self, I would say, yeah, definitely go ahead and, and study material science. You know, it's going to give you the ability to, to communicate and collaborate with a very, very diverse group of professionals. That's one of the biggest things that I've been able to, um, to get from it. And that's not to say that if you were doing something that is less traditionally multidisciplinary, like chemistry or physics or something like that, you don't get that. But the discipline of material science is inherently multidisciplinary. And there's just something that comes with that that I think is difficult to, to get elsewhere. But I would say, I, I would, you know, talking to myself at 20, I would say, push that even further, right? Do, you know, a broader scope of, of, of internships, right? You know, do undergraduate research that is broader, you know, collaborate with people in political science on the policy aspects of sustainability, for example, explore and just explore uh, more, more widely. So, you know, coming from me with my interest in multiple disciplines from material science to business, you know, that, that's probably not surprising, but, but that's, that's what I would say is, you know, rather than be very, very focused, take the material science background and explore all the different directions you could take it early on in your career. And you ultimately find what interface between disciplines you can most uniquely add value in. It's really interesting that you note that. We kind of had similar advice just like a couple episodes ago, but that further emphasizes the point of kind of having that interdisciplinary background and that there's a lot of innovation on those like interfaces between different disciplines. And I'm seeing it right now with like one of my projects at, at Boston Scientific too, like my Polymer's internship from a few years ago is really coming in play and kind of, yeah, it's, it, I definitely agree. And yeah, I just wanted to reiterate our appreciation for you joining our show today. I, I learned a lot. Absolutely. This was a lot of fun. It was great talking shop with you guys for a bit. As a materials engineer, we can make an impact in nearly every single industry. But with that versatility comes a lot of options to choose from. So if you have no idea which position or industry is right for you, you're not alone. I've been there, done that. But just for a moment, imagine narrowing down your ideal role and company within the week. Imagine being able to secure your dream offer without having to apply to hundreds of job openings. Our online course, MSE Academy, includes video testimonials, resumes, interview prep, and mentorship from materials engineers who have been in your shoes. We also connect our members with companies and industry professionals in our expansive network to help accelerate your job search process as much as possible. To learn more and get started, simply click the link in the show notes below. 
And if you enroll within the next 24 hours, we'll add three bonus career-related resources. I hope to see you there.